Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion. Second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. Today, we're going to talk about yesterday's announcements at Zoomtopia. There was a lot that will affect us. And so we'll be talking a little bit about it and answering as many of your questions as possible. We also have the Zoom team coming tomorrow. So this kind of is our preparatory. <laughs> we'll talk about it. We'll see more today. And then tomorrow, we'll get to really ask uh, ask some of the team some more questions. So stay tuned for that. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Lois, what do we have? Samuel Nordvik from Norway says, have you had the one and only projector in a live venue go out in an event? If so, how did you deal with it? Good, Courtney. Well, not in a, I think in a live event, we usually have connectivity problems and we usually wait for that, them to straighten that out. If the bulb goes out and that has happened to me in a, uh, you know, in a theater, uh, they have to give everyone their money back because the projectionist has to dress up in this bomb-proof suit to change the xenon bulb, and it takes about uh, 45 minutes to an hour. So you're not going to stop a movie in the middle. If you're, uh, if you're doing a presentation, another thing you might be able to try is a lot of times there's a confidence monitor, which will be like a 50-inch screen that is facing the, uh, facing the stage for the person making the presentation, you could always turn that around, put it up on stage and go with that as long as you still have a video feed to it if it's something like the projector bulb or something has gone out on the projector that has failed. That would be how I would handle it. Other than that, you'd just have to have the uh, person giving the presentation and go, imagine if you will, and then <laughs> describe the slides. Yeah, and, and really, I would think there's two versions of that question. How did you deal with it if you allowed that to happen, which is, you know, depending on what that projector is showing, have a good soft shoe routine that you can do or, you know, 20 minutes of stand up. Um, the other version of the question is, how do you prevent that? And that's redundancy. You know, anything you're doing live, whether it's a presentation, you have to think, uh, what am I willing to risk not happening? And if the primary focus is going to be what's on that projector, have a backup projector or be ready to do something without a projector. And go ahead, Mitchell. A lot of people would run two projectors on one screen. Uh, they could have it uh, just to increase the light or to uh, to have it there as a hot standby. But increasing the light is because would be the best because the worst that could happen is you'd lose half the light. And uh, like Jeff was suggesting, if all else fails, you could do a pantomime or shadow puppets. Yeah, on the largest events we work on, um, the, almost all of them have two to four projectors on, on those screens. So it, it, I've, we've seen up to four um, to get the most brightness out of it. And what it, what it means is if any one of those fails, you literally only lose a quarter of the light, um, and it's, which is for most people, not even very noticeable, like if it, if it actually happened. We've seen one projector fail on a four projector projection. Now, the thing that you need to know is that for, for that to work, you need professional level projectors. So um, these, these are, you have to be able to adjust them pixel for pixel to get them to line up. And what they do is they put up a grid and that grid is that you'll see them just slowly moving it back and forth and they'll line up each each projector together until those those lines, those single pixel lines are perfectly on top of each other. Um, and that that you know typically we see barcos and Panasonics um, you know doing most of that uh, most of those things uh, for that fine adjustment. You can't really do it with a consumer projector is is the double up or anything under. I mean, I don't know if any any projector under twenty five thousand dollars that will let you do what you need to do to align the projectors. So those are the that's how most people handle handle that. Um, we have had projectors go out on smaller events and 
almost every single time the speaker just took over and just gave a talk without the without the images. And in about 75% of the cases, it was better. <laughs> like it was, it was a better show without the slides. Um, you know, it, it, uh, it just forced them to talk through it. And, and so it didn't turn, it, it, it definitely had a lot of us think about slides after some of those failures. Uh, and that was in my early days, probably in the aughts and, and so on and so forth that we, we had a couple of those. I had one and I, I definitely think that my talk went better without the, without the, comp the, uh, without the slide deck. So I, I definitely became less connected to my slide deck after that. I'm going, Jeff. And I'll just add, I mean, if this is a presentation, like a deck or something like that, to Alex's point, um, and depending on the venue, some of these, I mean, if you're talking like a conference room or something like that, some of these portable projectors now are so small, so reasonably inexpensive, so portable, and yet so powerful and good. Uh, that's just almost a give me now to have in your bag. I mean, the, the reality is if if what you have on on in your presentation is a bunch of text and lists, you probably don't need it. Like it's probably better. You're probably better off not projecting them. Then I think that actually puts people to sleep faster if you if you put up the the text and the and the lists. Um, if you if you really have truly supporting material, it's a little harder. Um, but uh, but text and lists are, don't really count as supporting material. They're just uh, uh, errata. Go ahead, uh, Courtney. Yeah, but the one unknown on projectors is the bulb life and the, the bulb can go out on you. But another thing that people who aren't prepared, I did a, a fundraiser recently and uh, somebody was editing and preparing all the videos that were supposed to run, video introductions and video thank yous. And there were several videos that were supposed to run during the presentation and I brought them in and they were compressed in some format that the person who was doing the playout could not decompress. And uh, as the show was had to open, they never got them done. They would play 12 seconds and then stop. And so this is why it's important to test everything. Have all your videos together. Have all your ducks in a row. Rehearse it on the equipment that's going to project it on the day uh, to make sure you're not going to have a glitch like that of incompatibility because uh, compression formats, file formats, you know, thumb drive formats are all different these days, and you got to watch out for that stuff and not leave it to the last minute. Yeah, we usually tell folks when we're working with them that the minimum for us to give them the videos, and this doesn't always happen, but we need to see at least a version of the video from them, no less than seventy-two hours. They can maybe update it, but and they're like, "Well, all you have to do is download and, and, and load it in." I was like, "Well, we have to see if, if what you're sending." is actually going to work in our system and, you know, and as long as you keep sending that. So we just want something to see three days out, um, you know, to make sure that we, you know, that we know that you, you, what you're delivering is something that we can, that we can manage. Um, now I have to admit that we almost always have a host of m machines and, and it, we, that's one of the reasons we have a graphics person on almost every show is their job is not to do something else, but to manage all the stuff coming in and they've got, handbrake and and um, you know all kinds of other things that they can use we can take almost anything that showed up on video somewhere <laughs> convert it to what we need you you know just and it just depends on how long it is um, and we can usually do it relatively quickly but you have to have someone dedicated to that if you have a lot of those things the real problem you get into is small events have a person that's doing all these things and they have other things that need to get done before the and that's when you start having cascading failures where they go they focus on something that should have been easy. Now it's hard. Now nothing else is getting done that needed to get done for the show. And that's why you want to have you as best you can, you want to have enough people to manage it. It looks like they're not getting, they're not doing very much when 
everything's working. <laughs> it's when it's not working, you want to have those extra hands. Uh, next question. Simon Ray from Shrewsby, Shrewsbury, UK, says licensing popular music for production can be a nightmare. Are there any good, quote, sound alike, unquote, services that can offer renditions of popular songs on a more reasonable basis? Good, Bill. I've done that a couple of times. It's very difficult, and it's very difficult, I think, for some good reasons. First and foremost, um, there are a lot of different kinds of rights involved with popular music. Um, most Critically, we're talking about synchronization rights, which is using somebody else's music against your imagery and so forth. Um, there are sound alike libraries out there that'll give you the tone. But most of the time when people want to use popular music, it's because it resonates somehow emotionally with an audience. And you're trying to kind of take that into your production to give it extra emotional weight. Um, I used to think, why can't we just have a simple solution for licensing these things? And then I ran into a circumstance years ago that changed my entire opinion about it. Um, somebody in a video group that I was a part of had decided to make a statement and I support their artistic desire tremendously, but in this case, it worked out very wrongly. They took the fabulous Louis Armstrong piece, What a Wonderful World, and married it to images of the Holocaust. And from the moment that happened, I was unable to listen to that song, and to this day, I can't listen to it. So that combination of doing something that you felt was the right way to use this music had a, such an emotional impact on me in terms of taking away from me a piece of music that I adored and loved, that I realized that the owners of these copyrights have to protect the way their, their, their artistic expression is used so that that kind of thing doesn't happen and damages their property. So I'm kind of flipped from, we should all be able to do that for a modest fee to a, no, the copyright owner, the, the creator who made it should determine how their work is used. Go ahead, Mitchell. The uh, licenses Bill's referring to is the publishing license, the person that wrote the words and music and the mechanical, which is the actual recording generally owned by the record company. And you usually don't try to do that yourself because it's a very, very uh, complicated task. You usually go through a clearinghouse. Um, Alex knows one of them. I, I can't recall what it's called. But the clearinghouse will ask questions like what's the use and uh, what's the uh, the theme of the event because they have to protect the, uh, the, the image. Imagine by John Lennon gets asked for all the time, and they're very careful about who gets to use it. Yeah, yeah. The um, there's a, an, an odd number of them in in Vegas. <laughs> We've seen that the do the, the sound alikes. Um, that that uh, they that that's I think that there's just a bigger business there for the hotels and so on and so forth. And so um, they can they can they definitely have session artists that will come in and build those for you. Um, that and really they just have they they're pretty good at stepping off of the. Um, stepping off far enough that it's that it that someone would recognize that it might have been connected to it but um but it doesn't get you in a copyright issue <laughs> and that can be changing in chord progressions it can be changing in things that are like that and, and it's a pretty common thing to do um i you know we i did that in you know 15 years ago we did a fair bit of that and so it was and it was relatively useful but then i just decided it was what it did was mostly it just sounded like you didn't have the money to buy the real track, you know, like, and so, and so I, I, you know, I more got into working with composers and just saying, I really like these songs. I'm looking for something in that genre. I'm not looking for one that sounds like the, you know, I don't want it to be like so close to the song that you knew it. It's just, I just like this genre. This is the feel that I want, you know, that, that I have there. Um, and that was a lot more effective. What a lot of companies are doing now is they, 
get a feel for what they want for that year. They hire a composer to write 10, 12 clips for them that are three to five minutes long that they're going to use for all their events and all their videos and everything else. And it actually creates a really nice continuous experience um, that, that works through the, um, you know, through, through all of their PR and everything else. And they spend a bunch of money on it, but it's a lot, it's actually a lot less than licensing, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the songs is to, is to do that. And then there's some that just, just pay out the songs. But um, if you're looking for relatively modern pop songs, um, a lot of us use uh, Epidemic Sound um, because they license it. They get everything worked out with YouTube and Facebook and so on and so forth. So you can put that stuff up without having any major issue. It's not going to sound like another song, but it definitely sounds modern. Um, but but I think that that's, again, we you can definitely find the sound alike. Uh, if you're, you're looking for studios uh, with with cover service is what, you're, what you probably want to search on Google if you're looking for that specifically. Um, but it won't be that much less expensive than just hiring a good composer to build something that, that you, that, uh, that you like. Now, next question. Nathan Cashin from Oregon City says, I've had two power outages in five days, one of which was right before a small webinar I was hosting. What are some strategies for redundancy outside of a full power generator? Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, if this is a webinar that you're hosting either from home or, or even in your office, um, if your concern is simply you as the host staying on, you don't need a generator, but you do need uh, uh, an UPS uninterruptible power supply. Um, just make sure that all the parts that keep you on are plugged in. Your computer, if you have a monitor, maybe that's not necessary. Uh, but don't forget about the networking gear. You should be on Ethernet, not Wi-Fi. So make sure the router is also getting power from that uninterruptible power supply. So the, the two key things, your computer, camera, whatever you need, your networking, so your network, you stay on the internet, has power. And a good size, uh, for example, APC has a calculator that will let you calculate with your equipment how long each of them will let you run on battery power with no electricity and just get one with a, a decent amount of headroom. But the other key thing that I really wanted to make sure to point out that people often forget, uh, those things have usually two sides and they say this stuff has battery and this stuff is, is surge only. Make sure not only to put the stuff that you need on the battery, but also do the opposite. Don't put anything on the battery that doesn't need it, that isn't critical, peripherals, printers, anything else. Make sure they're not taking that precious battery power and you'll be fine for any average non-boring uh, webinar. Good, Courtney. Yeah, Jeff covered most of the, the high points of a UPS. And remember, the more uh, you're running out of that UPS, the shorter the time period it will run. So uh, depending upon what the UPS is rated at, one thing I have for emergencies is I have a couple of 33-amp-hour seal-lead-acid batteries and some uh, sine wave inverters that will plug into them so that I can run some equipment for, you know, four or five hours. Most UPSs will only run... Uh, depending, unless you get a really big one, uh, will only run most of your uh, uh, necessary equipment like your computer, your modem, your your cable modem, or your internet connection and your Wi-Fi and uh, those things uh, for about twenty to thirty minutes. So if you're 
you know, if the power outage happens, you know, 20, 30 minutes before your show is supposed to start, you may be out of luck if it lasts more than a couple of hours. And also another thing to remember is, is that um, if you're relying on your ISP to provide internet connectivity, a broad power outage that covers a whole neighborhood can also take out the distribution amplifiers that are up on the poles for those particular data connections. So you'll you might lose internet connection. It may take them a while to get that restored. So uh, you may not be able to do that unless you have a cellular um, connection uh, through the cell. The cell towers all have battery backups on them, and so they're less likely to go out. But in a broad power outage, everybody jumps on the cell phone, so the that becomes extremely congested at that point. So uh, it might be time to put up a little slide that says, due to power outage, we're rescheduling for another date. Good, Mitchell. Yeah, all good advice. Uh, the three main things that'll get you on power, a sag where it just drops too low, or there might be powering back for some reason, a surge, which uh, can mess your equipment up, and then, of course, a, a full-on uh, blackout. And some of those blackouts could be in the form of a momentary. It could be very quick. So most UPSs will cover those three categories up to about 20 minutes. But beyond that, you need a generator. Go ahead, Peter. Uh, two things. One is uh, it's all good and well to protect the stuff in your office, but uh, if you're doing it from home. But I, as I discovered last year, I had forgotten that the ONT, that which converts fiber to, to electrical signals, was someplace else in the house, so I needed to put a small battery there. And uh, and and beyond that, I mean, I have a whole house battery, and beyond that is a generator. But the other thing to remember is always assign a co-host, because even if you drop off the air, if you have a co-host assigned, that won't cause the cause the Zoom session to drop. <laughs> Go ahead, Lois. So planning for contingencies is always a good idea. And Peter's co-host thing is, is a great idea. And the other thing is that if you have things you're going to be showing, make sure somebody else has it so that if your power goes out, they can continue with the program if they're playing a video or doing slides or whatever. For me, if I am hosting something and I don't need all that other stuff, I, I'll just pull out my iPhone, I'll get onto the webinar through the iPhone, I'm still a host, and I'll explain to people that things are going to be a little rough today. So you have lots of you have lots of preparation ahead of time and pre planning. So good luck. Next question. Douglas Carmichael said, um, what niche do you think Zoom's in? I, I, I think maybe you didn't, yours didn't update. Try refreshing your page there. That's a second hour question. I took it out. So for, for the folks in the background, it should be, you should be seeing James Babbitt in the on deck. Do you see that, Lois? I can confirm I see James Babbitt in the top. James Babbitt from San Diego writes, has anyone on the panel tested desk view with a continuity continuity camera feature available with iOS 16 on the iPhone? I haven't tested it. Um, the um, I know that uh, we talked about it on Mac break and it, it seems to work pretty well. Um, it does, it, you know, it, it basically figures out, um, I think that um, uh, 
Jason Snell was showing some some results from that, and it seems to work pretty well. It it uh, it may stretch things a little bit because it's of course doing kind of a corner pin um, to try to get everything to look normal, and sometimes that makes things on the periphery not look normal. So so that's the one challenge with it. But I um you know I'm not. I have to admit, I haven't really tested it because I don't really care about it. Um, so I, you know, I think that um, if I want to do, um, you know, a desk view, I'm going to use a camera to do a desk view. The idea of using it, using my phone to do a, cast, a test view or using my, you know, any of that stuff to use it to do to do that. I get why some people might do it, but, you know, it's just not a behavior that I would probably take up. So, so I haven't really tested it because it's just not, not a priority. Um, next question. Chris Reidner from Lafayette, Indiana says LumaFusion now available on Android and Chrome has a link to that. No word yet on if they kept the export to FCP functions or does this give us any better interoperability for sending footage from Android phones to a Mac workflow? I don't know. We might have to bring them on and have them show it to us if they've got a new version. Um, you know, as always, I think that the, I think that the challenge is always once you start to, as someone who's done a lot of cross-platform development, once you go into cross-platform development, the feature, uh, the speed at which you can update features, you drops by like 10 times. You know, so so I, I, I hope that they're able to make, make the turn. Um, a lot of people think that that's going to open up a larger market, and oftentimes it doesn't. It just creates a lot more trouble. So um, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see how they do. Uh, next question. Lois, you're, you're still muted. I apologize. Um, Alan Scott from Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada. Has anybody used Locals? It's Locals.com. I actually looked at it. I, I didn't recognize it. I've never seen it before. I'm, I'm gonna, I think that it's an interesting, it looks like a, you know, a social network where you can pay the creators. Um, and I haven't, uh, haven't, seen, haven't seen it before. The question was asked. So it, it's probably still in its starting phases. Uh, go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, I'm on locals for my my area, not for anything business, just personal. I have to tell you, I'm I'm desperate to work out how to stop the emails. Um, I get something every day, you know, two or three times a day, either about a lost cat or something, and and so I've never seen it used for a, a business purpose, mostly just local com conversations. Oh, so it's like it's kind of like Nextdoor. Yeah. Well, okay. I, for some reason, I thought it was more of a like influencer thing at least the one that i went to locals.com um uh it looked like it was more there were influencers there that were um yeah i didn't you know because it's yeah next door is a is, a, is exciting i may <laughs> be confusing the two now i look at it locals looks like yeah i'm sorry i i think i may be wrong okay yeah yeah so it's it's um it, this one looks like more of a uh you know some kind of community driven around around influencers uh, go ahead lois yeah, I saw this question, went and checked it out. I could not find anywhere on there where it told me about the company. Uh, they they want you to sign up, they want you to join, you want you to go do these things, but they don't say who they are, how much it costs, what you're getting into. I wasn't comfortable giving them any, any information because when I looked at all of the locals' communities that they had there, there were a lot of... Um, radical communities there and it was it it's uh it says some of the people were saying and this is why i'm on locals and it was like this freedom of expression they're not going to shut me down for saying something bad i mean it's just it was a very interesting place but i don't think i'll 
I'm going to go there. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I looked at it briefly, and for some reason, Russell Brand seems to show up in about all the... Maybe he lives nearby. Uh, he could. Um, it does look like a collection of silos. So, you know, it, it doesn't seem to be very well moderated uh, because it, you know, collects uh, a bunch of different uh, silos or different uh, collections of people who are all expressing their, their opinion. Uh, so it doesn't seem to be fairly heavily moderated. So it seems to be dangerous in that, that respect. I don't think I would land there. You good, Bill? I just looked it up on Google and it's interesting. There are four different entries here and all of them have the word subscription in them. Makes it simple for creators to start a subscription-based service. And it, you know, it does this with subscription. So I think it's a play for people to uh, build a community and, and make money off of it. Which is what we, what we used to call Patreon. <laughs> so, so anyway, so anyway, all right, uh, next question. Chris Widener from Lafayette, Indiana writes, double Twitter check marks, question mark. Won't this just lead to a new weird level of confusion? I've only recently started doing live on Twitter and now with the uncertainty, I'm getting clients pulling back. Is anyone else seeing that? Go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, I'm not sure what the double uh, Twitter check marks is. I will, when they allow the subscription, uh, try the, the check mark. Um, I thought uh, it worked very well in the existing previous world for those that had it and it didn't work for those that didn't. And I, I still believe in Twitter. I still think the idea is right. I joined it in 2007. I still think that the idea of creating a good community there is possible. And so I want to support this. And again, I know it's a bit of a wild west at the moment. But I think you have to look past the next 10 months and think about five years. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, politics aside, because it's unfortunate when that muddies up technical issues, um, the, the proposal right now, and this is all new, I mean, it, it hasn't even taken hold yet. So obviously premature to be making decisions like that. But the, the three tentative account statuses will be official, paid, and unlabeled. So they're going to make a distinction, but it's not going to be duplicate. It's one or the other, or one of those three, a normal account, an official account, which means it has been verified, primarily that you're the real person, not all the uh, impersonators. And, and then paid, which is someone doing some kind of paid promotion. Um, so verification identity is good. Uh, I, I don't see a problem with uh, with that. And then the other thing to remember, you know, since the dawn of software, and frankly, for millions of years, our brains are programmed to react badly to change. And every time any piece of software changes since the dawn of software, people freak out. This is the end of X product. This is the end of X platform. And that's rarely the case. So I would encourage anyone, if what they're doing on Twitter is working, keep doing that thing and we'll see how this plays out. Good, Bill. I was in a place where I was looking at some uh, CEOs who are weighing in on the acquisition and they the, oh, the general feeling that I got was, it's really hard to one, run one company well. When you get to the point that Mr. Musk has, where you've got four or five or six, and certainly with three premier services, and you're trying to manage them all, it is incredibly difficult to do that. So my concern is just whether or not 
the attention becomes fleeting. It's when there's a problem, we'll think about it. But when not, I have to worry about SpaceX or I have to worry about Tesla or I have to worry about something else. And if um, it's a centralized organization, as this appears to be, I'm just wondering how their how their management system is going to work going forward in that kind of environment. I'm not an expert in it, but those those would be my concerns. I'm staying kind of out of the mix for a while. Yeah, I think that I think that they're. It, it really feels like the attempt is, is number one is there'll be an official official check mark that says that they've verified you, like truly verified. I think that was one of the problems everyone was concerned about when they first said anybody can just pay and be somebody else. Um, I think that they should just charge, if you want an official one, you should pay a hundred bucks and show up some physical place with your birth certificate and say, I'm this, <laughs> you know, like not, you know, and just, and just, you know, and pay for the cost that it takes them to support that. They put it offices in every major city, that type of thing. And if you want that official thing, you have to go through that process. Um, you know, and then, and then we have a, a check mark that actually matters. And then the other check mark is basically saying, well, I'm paying to be here. Um, and that does really, will, the, the, the challenge for Twitter will be the conversation might get actually much better on Twitter if you charge everybody eight bucks a month. <laughs> you know, and, and I found this in the past with social networks is charge a little bit and everything cleans up real quick, you know. And so um, uh, so I think that, that it could be. But the problem is, is the influence of, of Twitter might drop pretty dramatically over time just because there'll just be a lot less people, um, you know, in it. So you'll probably, I, it could be as meant, I, I would say you might lose as much as 80 or 90% of the, of the following. Maybe that's fine. <laughs> Maybe 50 million people is enough, you know, to make that, to make that actually work. It is about that, right? By the way, um, 50 million paying subscribers would generate at $8 a month, uh, 50 to 60 million would probably generate the same amount of money as they're making in advertising right now. So, and then they could add advertising on top of that. So when you think about the math um, and that they might lose 90% of their market, they might still be making more money than they were making before um, with far less people. Um, whether it has the same cultural impact is, is up for grabs. Um, next question. And Tony Mobley from Noonan, Georgia says, can Peter share the use case for using Shoot Pro app with Mimi Live? Uh, Mimo, Mimo Live. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Um, uh, Peter, do you, do you want to talk about how you're using it? Well, I, I'm actually surprised you asked the question because I actually am not using uh, that with Memo Live. I'm using Video Pencil with Memo Live. And in fact, actually, unfortunately, today I can't because I don't have the sandbox set up on Memo Live to now let me do that. And if I were to switch over right now, the back end folks would shoot me. I think they can. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, next question. And this is from Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas. What are video meetings like on LinkedIn? I have to admit that I've never done a video meeting on LinkedIn. <laughs> so I don't, I don't think I have an answer for that. I, I will admit that I see that they've been out for a while. Uh, I didn't know they existed until you asked the question. <laughs> so evidently, and I, I mean, I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. So um, I think if you're deep in LinkedIn, I think, and you really are embedded into it, it's good to have a service that does that. Um, but otherwise, I think most people are just using Zoom. Uh, go ahead, Tony. I just wanted to share that we were able to do the first successful conversation with Tony Mobley with LinkedIn Live on last Wednesday. And so I'm excited about it with no issues at all. And it worked perfectly. And now we just need to get some people to watch it. And so I uh, just wanted to share that. Cool. Uh, next question. 
Tony Mobley asks, uh, from Noonan, Georgia, he asks, Alex, are you affected by the affinity overhaul? I, I don't know what the affinity overhaul is. <laughs> People are asking a lot of questions today that I, haven't, I don't really have any idea of. It's, it's, a, it's a different uh, spin today. Uh, go ahead, Tony. So uh, affinity or serif has overhauled the entire affinity range of applications. And so what they've done is they've uh, created a discount of all of the services and Affinity Photo, Affinity Publisher, all of them have been upgraded and they've tweaked them. And I was just curious, uh, I only have the uh, Affinity Photo application on, on my uh, system, but I was just curious. I know that you do use Affinity Photo for some things. I use it. For, I use a lot of it. I just don't, uh, uh, I don't, I haven't seen anything new, I guess is the thing. That, and maybe they've launched it. I own all those products. And so I don't, I said I was getting rid of a subscription service, but I don't, I don't think I was paying a subscription for them. So I don't, I'm not, uh, I'm not certain how, how I slipped through the, through the gap there. Um, the updates that it has lit, um, that it has there look pretty good. So, uh, so I'm not I'm not certain of, of of exactly how that's working. Go ahead, Bill. This looks like it may be a shot across the bow of the uh, Photoshop model, the uh, Adobe model. Uh, you know, all the tools in a creative suite with no subscription cost would be a pretty compelling circumstance for some people. I don't know what the pricing is like, and I you know I know that the apps are pretty well spoken of in the community, so I think they're a solid developer with a good track record. Yeah, yeah, I have to look at it. I. I I use Affinity uh, Designer and Photo every day. Um, I use Photoshop maybe once a week now. So, uh, and so, and and so, I think that um, they they've done a pretty good job. They've probably had the the one. There's been a couple of these, and I think that Affinity was just the easiest one for a Photoshop user to move to. Like that was the, and the reason I moved to it originally was not because of I was trying to replace Photoshop. It was because I. They had a little tool that let you take spherical images and reproject them so that you could do um, cloning on a sphere without without um, any convolution kernels. So you wouldn't re it wouldn't rewrite the image. It would just let you do do the mapping. So when I was doing spherical pictures, it, it was easy to get rid of the tripod. <laughs> That's the only reason I used it. I bought the program just to, to get rid of tripods and um, and then just started using it for more and more things over time. Go ahead, Tony. Yeah, the, the, it seems to be a bigger push now for it to be able to use on the Mac as well as the new iPad. So that's, I think that's the the central focus on why they're, they're doing the overhaul. I, I have to admit that I've never used it on the iPad. <laughs> so I've only used it on the Mac. So yeah, so um, anyway, all right, next question. Chris Widener from Lafayette, Indiana writes, for a traveling team, what would you recommend for sharing location check-ins to a publicly shareable map? We want people to come meet with the team on site. Go ahead, Courtney. I like to use Google Maps because uh, it's cross-platform, so it works with uh, iPhones, iPads, and Android, and uh, you can even monitor it on your computer. Uh, if you go to, to Google uh, Maps Help, they have a whole section there on how to share your location real-time with others. You can assign a group of people who can monitor your uh, your availability and your sharing. It'll even give you an ETA. And it has little tabs here on uh, using it on your computer, how to do it on your computer, how to do it on iPhone, how to do it on Android. And since I use uh, Google Maps as my nav 
navigation software in my car, it would help because then it would show up stuff uh, that I could maybe call up stuff on Android Auto or if you're using the iPhone interface and Google Maps for your navigation, you could use that. There's a lot of uh, options with Google Maps when it comes to developer tools as well. So you can do a lot of things where I had to visualize where a whole, like, a thousand locations were and I was and there's tools that will let you just you just import a CSV drop it in and it'll just put pins all over all over Google Maps for you and just drop those pins on and um, and it's a really great way to kind of visualize where where things are and, and what they look like um, so I think that I, I agree with Courtney that Google Maps is probably the best as far as how to how to make those and publish them go ahead uh, Peter I've the one thing I would add to that is, depending on how you're trying to publicize it, I've used Google Maps in conjunction with QR codes and actually printed out cards. If you want to see us, go here. And, you know, it's it's hard for some people to actually look at a map and say, where is go here? But if you give them a QR code, that will take them to a Google map that will then guide them to where they need to go. This was on a, a location that was about a, you know, a thousand acres worth of land. So they had to go this was a large Boy Scout camp, so they had to go find us. But by doing that, the map would actually show show the people where they were, but the That's QR great. code got them there. That's great. Uh, yeah, it's amazing how QR codes went from, you know, kind of languishing. As soon as Apple put it into the phone, uh, into the into the photo app, it suddenly QR codes just turned right back on again. <laughs> and now we use them. I use them all the time uh, for, for what I do. Uh, next question. Chad Lafarge from Columbia, Missouri says, as a new owner of a few MetaQuest 2 headsets, what are the hacks I need to know to make these useful beyond gaming? Good luck. <laughs> like, I don't have a lot of, uh, you know, like there's, there, there's not that many things on Google Quest, in my opinion, that are that great uh, outside of the gaming stuff. The, um, the Google Earth on MetaQuest, at least not on MetaQuest, I haven't done it on MetaQuest, but on the Oculus was pretty impressive. So, um, you know, looking around on Google Earth, we're coming back to Google again, but looking on Google Earth uh, was one of the things that I kind of played with there. There is also, look for some of the 3D painting programs, and I don't know which ones are available and, uh, you know, I haven't used them for a little while, but but those are also pretty interesting. Um, so so those might be, uh, Medium I think was the one that, that I worked with the most in Oculus. Um, but uh, I have to admit that the the, the problem for the Meta, the MetaQuest for me was that I wear glasses, you know, and I have a family that all wants to use them. And I would put my glasses in underneath them so that I could see what was going on and uh, damage the glasses over time. And I just didn't want to go through putting the lenses in and out. So I just stopped using them. I've never gone back. <laughs> like, like, like it's it's just like the, that's the, and I think that I, I don't think that I, the reason I bring that up is that I'm not sure that I'm not, I talk to other people and they make the same decision. I don't want to buy new, I don't want to buy prescription lenses for my, my quest. And the reason that I bring this up is because Samsung figured it out. They had a gear, you put your phone on and they had a little dial at the top that would move those lenses to where they needed to be so that you could, you could look at it. I'm sure that there was some reason that people, that, that, that Meta took them out. But the, but, but I think the fact that I knew that someone else made something less expensive that did exactly what I needed made me far less interested in, in trying to figure it out. <laughs> Go ahead, Jeff. 
You know, just as an aside, you made me made me think of this, Alex. Um, a couple of years ago, I considered finally getting LASIK and went to the doctor to find out about it. And I mean, I was at a big university hospital eye facility, some of the best folks in the world. And I asked them, hey, you know, I'm considering this LASIK, but... Uh, you know, moving forward, I'm really looking forward to augmented reality glasses, much less VR. I mean, augmented reality, how is LASIK going to potentially affect my ability for those things to work properly? And they didn't know. They hadn't even heard the question. So uh, I'm holding off because I will kick myself if I do something like that, let alone prescription lenses. And then, you know, two years from now, we have great augmented reality and, and, you know, uh, then la- the LASIK folks can't use it. I, I've thought about LASIK in the past. Uh, I think the problem that I have is that uh, half people I know that got LASIK thought it was the best thing ever, and half of them can't drive at night. <laughs> so, so, so I'm like, so, so, so I, 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 so it's left me a little like, mm, I don't think I'm going to do that. Uh, next question. Tony Mobley from Noonan, Georgia writes, if we have time today, can Alex share the popcorn recommended machines with links, popcorn and flavors? <laughs> Most important question those. of the day. I know, I know. This is a very deep, deep media question. Uh, it's the, it's Amish, the Amish popcorn. I can't think of the name of the name of the, usually Jason just got it, but it's a, uh, um, uh, it is a, um, yeah, it's a funny question. Um, the, the Amish, uh, I use, it's, it's Amish popcorn and specifically the mushroom popcorn is what, is what I get. It's, it, it's what they use at movie theaters or, or at, or not in movie theaters when you get caramel corn or whatever at a, at a, at a thing. It's, it's this, that's what they make that for. Um, but all the Amish popcorn on Amazon is, is, is pretty, it's, um, uh, yeah, it's, I'm trying to find it really quickly while I talk. You need but, to know mushroom is not the flavor, it's the shape, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <just laughs> yeah exactly. There's no flavor to it. <laughs> yeah, the, um, uh, it's Amish country popcorn and it's mushroom popcorn kernels, but you can also get a, um, you can also get lots of different ones. You can get a sampler. They have the, they have a variety bundle and it's really fun to see how many different kinds of popcorn there, there might be. Um, once you start getting the Amish country popcorn, you will stop getting everything else because you'll realize that measuring popcorn by how many kernels popped is a horrible way to decide what you're going to eat. It would be better if you, you measured it by taste. You know, just, I'm just saying, like, like we figured out, like or- Orville Redenbacher figured out how to have all the pot, what he measured. This is, and this is an interesting thing that we should all pay attention to is that it, you don't measure what matters, what you measure matters. You know, And so what Orville Rod- Redenbacher did, he didn't measure by taste. He measured by how many of the kernels popped. So we were eating something that we wanted to taste like something, but, but that's not what, that was not the measure that the popcorn was made by in almost all of the popcorns that you buy at a supermarket. It was made, you know, and, and I, I find this fascinating because I think it was a media developers want to pay attention to this. I was watching um, Chef's Table. If you haven't seen Chef's Table, it's the, in my opinion, one of the best series on Netflix um, is, and Chef's Table, um, uh, it just follows these, you know, crazy chefs, and and uh, they're they're really amazing. I mean, they're crazy, effect, you know, crazy effective. Um, they, uh, but they're all kind of rebels, and they're all kind of thinking through things, and they're all edgy, and they all. Are, and one of them was talking about. He was talking to a a guy who who develops new strains of things, you know, for supermarkets and for for um, big farm, you know, big big farms. And um, he wanted a squash that was smaller and had more 
rich taste. He said that the squash that I'm buying is too big, so I have to, you know, it's not good for one meal. I want it down to small enough that it's one meal, and I want it to be super rich in taste. And the guy said, no one's ever asked for that before. <laughs> like, like no one's ever asked for it to taste better. They want it, to, they want it longer shelf life. They want it to be more... Uh, uh, they, they want it to pack better. They want it to, you know, like all the, you know, those are the kind of things that they care about. They don't care about the taste. And so, you know, when we make things, a lot of times we can get caught up in the logistical requirements of doing it as opposed to the experience requirements of doing it. And I think that's a good lesson for us as, as um, media developers. But to get back to this, it's the, the uh, Amish country popcorn and the whirly pop popcorn popper with the metal gear copper. <laughs> like, is that, that's the one that I use. Go ahead, Courtney. One tip that I have, I, I, and by the way, I did order the six pound bag. <laughs> it's the way to go. Six pounds. And I have it, and I'll be eating the mushroom popcorn for quite. And, and what's confusing is on Amazon, it lists the flavor name as mushroom. It's not the flavor. Yeah. It's not mushroom yeah. flavored. But the way I cook it is I pop it. And of course, popcorn works by, uh, you know, the moisture inside the kernel heats up to its flash point and then pops as releases the steam and the moisture inside the kernel. Uh, so I like, but I like my popcorn fresh and crunchy. Uh, and a lot of times freshly popped popcorn is still kind of a little moist because that steam is still, hasn't all escaped from the, the uh, popcorn popper. So I'll put mine back in the microwave, put a couple of pats of butter on top of it because I don't cook it in oil. I, I cook it in microwave without any oil. And uh, I'll put a couple of pats of butter and cook it for another on high for another two and a half to three and a half minutes. And it toasts it, it melts the butter and toasts the popcorn. But you got to watch it very carefully because you go too far and it'll catch it fire and burn. <laughs> but but there's, there's it does take out it takes out that excess moisture. It evaporates right. that excess moisture and it makes it it brings it back alive again when you think your popcorn has gone stale. Go ahead, Mitchell. Speaking of burning popcorn, if you ever burn it, you will never eat popcorn again. <laughs> Do I detect a second hour coming? Yeah, there's a, there's <laughs> a live second hour on, after on hours. popcorn. And, and by the way, my favorite popcorn is actually maize that's popped in Africa. So in, in Zimbabwe, you can get this. It'll be by the side of the road. You can buy it and it's maize and it's popped and it's very hearty. Like it's like big, thick and heavy. And it is 10 times better than the popcorn we eat here. I just can't figure out a place to buy it. Um, next question. J.J. McKenna from Santa Venetia, California writes, Yesterday, there were some conversations about, quote, badges, unquote, for achievements in office hours. Could these be built as NFTs with mid-journey? And what would that cost be? Go ahead, Mitchell. Badges? Do we need badges? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 don't, uh, I don't know if we, I, I, we... We may do something someday but, but and we could do them with mid-journey i don't know if, i mean i guess we could do nfts i don't know if it, it would right now the problem is we're waiting for nfts to shake out as far as proof of work and proof of stake and it's not you know like proof of work is like not viable you know to, to do anything that's fun like it's it's good for you know and and but but if proof of stake you know can can really become something that we can use and the usage of that nft becomes you know less than a penny a transaction um i think that then we can start having more fun with it. Next question. Jeff Cohen from Miami Beach, Florida writes, anyone know a good universal video camera slash webcam settings app for the Mac? Looking for a non-manufacturer specific app to set brightness, zoom in, out, etc. And that can be closed once the camera is set. Bonus for an app store app. Go ahead, Peter. Short answer is no. 
<laughs> I haven't found one that will work universally between Intel and M1 Max to this point. And you, you, well, and, and so if you're trying to control the. And, and close it and close it. If you're trying to show the web, if you're trying to control the webcam on the Mac, the answer is absolutely not. Um, any, in the last two or three versions of the Mac, if you, the, if you ask for the control of the camera for the UVC request, it immediately turns off and won't turn back on until you restart the computer. So it's, it is, it, so you can't control the, the, it's a security feature for Apple. The, you can control external ones like this with things like webcam settings. And, and, and I, I haven't tried webcam settings, I admit, on the M1. Um, so, Peter, you weren't able to get webcam settings to work on the it, M1? It, it wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't work consistently. And he's not going to like the answer I, I came up with, and that is Mimo Live can, in fact, ingest the camera and then make all the adjustments you want to make to it. But you're not adjusting the camera, you're adjusting the video feed that then it, it's passing on to Zoom or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, the um, uh, so I think that I think that the on Intel and I have again I haven't tested webcam settings on a on a M1, but webcam settings worked fine on Intel and it would do exactly what you want, which is that you could adjust the brightness, zoom, everything else, and then you could shut it. It, it generally is like a little utility that sits in your menu bar um, that you can use to to do that. Um, the the challenge with it um, became when um, when zoom requests your full resolution you know when you pop in and you're we highlight you in a in a in a zoom many of the web cameras will snap all the way back out to their widest you know they'll they'll just pop out because they're getting they're not getting i want 1080p they're getting maximum resolution or maximum that that's a request for for full resolution and they just snap all the way back out again and we found that to be and we still see it um even with these little links, we were seeing it occasionally where, where we, where we'd set it all up, and then as soon as Zoom got went full screen with it, it would pop back out again. So it's a, it's still it's still an issue that we haven't been able to quite solve. Go ahead, Jeff. And webcam settings is this uh, is that App Store app, right? Yep. Um, yep. I think that we probably all find. Okay. Yeah. And I and I did find one another one. It's called. Um, uh, manual camera. Yep. And manual, ca manual camera and work, works. Does it work on a, do you know if it works on an M1? I don't, uh, I don't know that. Yeah. 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 It's, um, and, and it, so this manual camera works, it's, it's not great. Uh, it, but it does that thing. And I hadn't noticed a problem if I, I'm not going to attempt it now, but hadn't noticed a problem if I try and do it, um, mid zoom meeting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, um, manual camera is the other one. It, I found that it wasn't quite as responsive as, as webcam settings, but I'd have both of them. Um, and on Intel computers, they worked great. And, I, and again, I just haven't, uh, my M1s showed up when I really was focused on other kinds of cameras. And so I just haven't, you know, connected uh, anything that I had to do manual, manual work on. Go ahead, Tony. Just, just because part of the journey that I've been on, I, I've had the occasion to use all of those apps that have already been mentioned. And what I ended up using was moving to an iPhone and using Filmic Pro. And that has been the most successful way for me to do it, with the exception of now this week, I am now using the Shoot app. And I, I am pretty happy with the success that I'm having with it. Your sync looks a lot better. Did you change something? 
I did not. Interesting. It's, it definitely looks better than it did before. It's, it's an interesting thing. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael writes, Alex, you mentioned Handbrake as a utility software tool for converting video files. What utility software products would you recommend having available for every show? Go ahead, Bill. Handbrake's been around forever and it's a great program and it's open source, which means there's a robust community that works on it and keeps it going. So as uh, things evolve, uh, it kind of keeps up with the uh, times. I think the other program for me in that same classification is VLC, Video Land Controller. It's been around forever and it's one of those things, if you don't know uh, what a video file is on your desktop and you want to open it, you try VLC and uh handbrake and one of them will almost undoubtedly open it and be able to transcode that into something else so those are the two big open source pieces that i always rely on yeah i'm trying to think of the things that that we absolutely um install i mean i know that for uh on site maybe not in every computer but on site we all often have softron even though we use hyperdex a lot for playout uh, we usually have a couple either one or two versions of softron on the air there because it means that we can grab any file and start playing it out <laughs> and it, we know it's going to be reliable it's going to do what it needs to do um and so that's a that's a utility it's a pretty expensive utility but it's a utility um, that we find useful if we get last minute files that we have to um pr we can't process um you know again yeah handbrake for grabbing onto stuff i mean you can handbrake is a front end for ffmpeg so you could script you know the the conversions of it but it's easier to give it to somebody and just have them do it um the we generally have a copy of photoshop you know that's that's there you know someone's going to give you a file that you need to uh, manage so photoshop and oftentimes illustrator um are there we also all the computers will have Affinity Photo and um, Affinity Designer to open most of those, but if there's any issue with them, we always want one computer that can that can manage um, manage that if it needs to be uh, there. I'm trying to think of other things. I mean, we have you know typically we have a lot of um, uh, other tools that you know, but I, I'm just trying to think of the exact ones that we really worry about. Um, but those are the ones that we I probably pay the most attention to. Of course, you know we have. Keynote, we have something that can read a PDF and, and de deconstruct it. So, you know, oftentimes Acrobat or something like that. Someone's going to give us a PDF. I got to get an image out of it or I have to get the text out of it. And I need something to grab onto that. So those are kind of some of the other things that we um, tend to think about. Um, next question. Keenan Campbell from Nevada says, let's have a fun second hour about snacks and recipes with a hint of craft services. I think it, I think it might be an after hours discussion. <laughs> a lab might, might make more sense. Go ahead, Mitchell. Keenan, I see what you're doing here. And any discussion of food tends to go right to my waistline. I'm already trying to get over the popcorn discussion. Um, but speaking of food, um, I really love the Stanley Tucci Discovering Italy show that's on CNN. It is magnificent. It's well-produced. Stanley is an excellent host. And when I see the food, I just go crazy and call out uh, for Italian. <laughs> Next question. Chris Widener from Lafayette, Indiana, comes back. For each of the cities that the community assessment teams visit, we want a real-time map of their movements. Is Google Maps on iOS capable of updating a web-based map with their location? Kind of like tracking Amazon deliveries. There used to be a really good app that did this called Twist. And this was probably um, a solid decade ago. And I, I think they just didn't figure out how to make money with it, but it was amazing. We would send out Twist links to uh, our crew. We'd say, we need you to send send your Twist to us. We would send, a, this is where you want you to send it. 
email your twist links as you leave your house. <laughs> like, like, like we want to know where you are on the way. To, you don't have to do it right when you leave your house. If, if some people want, were worried about security, but I said within five minutes, you need to turn it on so that we know where you're at. Um, you know, so that we know, you know, if you're late or you're caught in traffic or you're, you're caught in whatever. And it wasn't for the freelance folks. It was just for our staff. Um, and, uh, um, and, and so what we, it, it allowed us to always just know where people were on their way to where we were going. I have never seen another app that, that, um, uh, that did it. It was a, it was great. And I used to send twists to everybody like, Hey, I'm leaving. Here's a twist. You can do that. You can share your location on Apple products. You can share them on Facebook. You can share them on a bunch of different things to, to send it out. But I don't know of any good apps that really aggregate that without just GPS trackers. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, you, and it mentions in the Google Apps uh, help things. You have to use it. It doesn't work on a computer. You can monitor things on a computer and control the the uh, a collection of people who have access on the computer. But it, obviously, since it doesn't have GPS built into most computers, it can't track you on a on a laptop. But if you're using a Google Chrome on your iOS, I think Google Chrome is available on all iOS pro- platforms uh, to to launch Maps on. It should update it regularly. And and uh, keep it up to date as people move around, kind of like the Amazon Maps, because I think Amazon, Amazon, your delivery is on the way. Map uh, is powered by Google Maps. Good, Bill. I'm not sure I would want everything tracking real time, but if assuming that you got buy-in from your employees, the other thing uh, you can check where they might be at a moment using an AirTag, I guess, just put it on a key fob that they keep with them. And uh, that's a way it's not real time tracking, but again, real time tracking seems a little invasive to me. I know if I was a driver for somebody and you know, why did you turn left there? And it was like, I needed a comfort break. I just, you know, (laughs) can you please let me do my job? I, it, it is a funny, it's a funny thing because we, we have a lot of air tracker. I mean, the air tags now we're putting on everything. So everything that moves anywhere gets an air tag. And it's funny because like we, we send all of our gear somewhere. You see this cloud of air because they're not, they're not super accurate. So there's this cloud of air tags that are going down, you know, the five, you know, and, um, and so, uh, you know, it was, it's a funny, it's a funny thing to see. And, um, you know, uh, but I, I don't know of any place that's, again, I, I'm sure that they're out there. We used to have we used to put them in our cars, um, you know, so the truck had a, had one, it had a GPS tracker. It's air, I think it's like Airland and Sea or something like that makes them and we put them in the truck. And it's super useful for us to just know like, oh, our driver, the person who's carrying, you know, a million dollars worth of gear, we know where they are and if they're ahead or behind. And, and um, you know, I think that um, we don't want to track people personally when they're not working for us, but a lot of times it was very useful to know where people are. Um, we've worked in I haven't generated this, but we've worked in areas where you would log in with your phone and it would, in the venue, it would tell you everybody where everybody is. <laughs> you know, like, and so then you weren't asking people like, where is that person? Um, it, it would just go, you, you just see these old dots everywhere. Um, but that was a test app. <laughs> so I don't think it ever got released. Uh, next question. Lenny Nelson from San Antonio, Texas writes, I had to watch multiple different networks election coverage last night. You've done reviews of sports graphics. Ever thought about doing the same thing for elections? Go ahead, Mitchell. Lenny, it's a, a little bit of a tricky question because it would allow uh, require us to get involved in uh, election and then politics, which is definitely off the table for office hours. But the data... Uh, is an interesting um, uh, suggestion. And I've found that uh, watching the data with the sound off, uh, I enjoy the coverage a lot better. So I don't want to get political here, but uh, 
I think it's an interesting challenge. Go ahead, Courtney. I did watch a little bit of election coverage. I was working pretty late, but um, the uh, I did notice that they're using a lot of uh, virtual 3D graphics that are, are tied into their in-studio in sets. So they weren't necessarily on a virtual set. They're on a real set, but in the foreground, they'd pop up a three-dimensional looking graphic with data on it. And as the Steadicam or the Jibcam moves around, the perspective changes on the, and, it, and it marries that 3D graphic to their real-time set. So that looks pretty slick, and that's something new I haven't seen in election coverage previously. Go ahead, Tony. Yeah, I just wanted to echo what what um, Courtney just said in terms of the the animation and the graphics that were used um, on NBC last night. They were using a lot of touch screens for a lot of the things that they were sharing. You go, you go Jeff. Yeah, I take the question, by the way, not to be anything about their the substance of their coverage, but just the aesthetics, the graphics, right. and everything else. And I think that would be great. Alex used to do some really ruthless reviews yeah. of some of those before uh, before all this, and, and I actually can't find them now. I would love They're, to find some of those. They should be in the Pixel Core. They're still on YouTube under the Pixel Core channel, I think, the, the, the teardowns. Um, and but but I, you were honest, but you, know, you, you called it as you saw in terms of how they were doing, especially those virtual sets. Yeah, I think that I'm, I'm thinking about bringing those back. <laughs> so we'll, see, well, yeah, the, uh, um, but, uh, but I think that, um, I think it'd be great. I think we can definitely do it without talking about the politics. Um, I think that just talking about the graphics is something that would be a doable thing. Like maybe uh, Josh can note it and think about maybe even doing it as early as next week. Next question. John Dunn asks, what's happening with the space project future plans? Go ahead, John. We're working on our, the next launch right now. It's the Nova Payloader. I talked about it a little bit. If you go to Garage Rocketeers, uh, you'll find information about that specific project. Next question. Douglas Carmichael writes, I need to move my studio equipment and personal effects across the country. Would a pods container suffice or would FedEx or a similar insured and tracked thing be better? Pods is great. I moved a whole house and then left it there. <laughs> the funniest thing is I, I put it, I put my whole house in it. And then I, and then I parked it at another house for a year <laughs> and then just sent it back to never got anything out of it. Um, it, it seemed like a good, it, it seemed like I was going to move things out, but I wasn't sure what I was going to do next. And it wasn't horribly expensive and they just come, they drop it off. You fill it up. They come pick it up. You can have it stored somewhere for a while in, in a, in a warehouse. If you want, you can have it dropped out outside and you just keep paying a monthly fee it's an incredible business model and a great business to work with. Uh, we, I can't, I can't recommend them more. So, all right. We are now changing subjects to talking about yesterday. Yesterday we had a, uh, there was the um, Zoom announcements. Uh, we had a product keynote, and of course, uh, Zoom. We, we spend a lot of time in Zoom, and and uh, and so we're uh, very conscious to any changes that they make, and they made a lot of changes. Um, to to what they're doing. Um, I would normally say that we should just we should, the panel will do a roundtable, but we've got so many questions and no hands up for the for the panel discussion, so we're just going to keep moving. Uh, let's let's jump into the first question. Mike Edwards from Brooklyn, New York says, "Morning, guys. Can we do an office hours recap of the Zoom announcements yesterday? What piqued your interest?" I mean, I, I have to say that uh, I. There's a lot of it, of course, that I didn't care about. The um, the the parts that I did care about, of course, were the uh, dealing with some of the Zoom apps. You may have noticed that um, Commenda, um, which is the sister app to um, Mokana, 
uh, was in the keynote. <laughs> so so our uh, the panel view that we use here is um, we've ported part of it into Zoom. And so that was uh, that was mentioned in going by. SPX, of course, was mentioned uh, as one of the apps that was there. So um, uh, congratulations to Omo. And, um, and then, of course, some of the stuff that we're pretty excited about are, um, you know, uh, the double-ended recording uh, is going to be really interesting. I think that uh, it, I think that <laughs> for those of you who have been using Riverside, you might want to watch this, watch that channel. <laughs> so, so this is basically what a double-end recording means is that it can record uh, both ends of the conversation and then upload those um, in the back, in the behind the scenes. Uh, so it's just another recording option that you'll have. Um, for a lot of us, it's it's really important because. If, I, if someone has Wi-Fi or if they have a non-integrated connection or whatever, we can get the local recording from them, have it sent back to us so that we can compile it. So if you're doing podcasts, it's a pretty exciting um, you know, solution for getting interviews and so on and so forth. So I think that the double-end recording is, is pretty interesting. Um, you know, I think that there is a lot moving, and I, and I think we're going to definitely want to watch. I know there's another question coming up here, but, but I, I think we definitely want to take an eye on both um, – Andy and Sam's uh, um, presentations this morning. We're going to do. A, we're we're going to watch it together um, this morning. So we'll be doing that in after hours. But I think that we're going to see more details around some of the show controls and design. And you know, they're moving a lot of the tools. You know, a lot of basic broadcast tools into the application. Um, you know, into you know. And so I think that there's a lot of really interesting opportunities there. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, the fact that they're uh, doing all these Swiss, Ar uh, Swiss Army knife uh, type applications that certainly suit our business uh, is too good to be true. I mean, I don't know what to say, but uh, seeing a Makana knockoff uh, showing up in there or it's whatever it is. It's not a Makana uh, knockoff. It's okay, I want to call it that. All right, sorry. So it's, yes, I it's, used it's, it's, it's my, I mean, it's, we did it, so it's, yeah. Okay, so it's not. Um, but seeing all these production tools uh, means that Zoom now embraces the production community and that is very significant to our business. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Uh, yeah, now I'm just going to ask uh, Alex if how it works on the double-end recording. Do they timestamp each of the ISO files so that you can sync them up easily for the? I'll be honest; I haven't tested it yet, so I don't know. Mm. I don't know and exactly the, how it works. So the other thing uh, we have, by I the way, we'll, the the team working on it will be here tomorrow. So oh. we're, we're we're discussing what we saw yesterday, but you'll be able to ask that question uh, more directly tomorrow. Okay, great. And I did see a, a news story yesterday. I didn't get a chance to attend to watch Zoomtopia, but AMC Theaters announced that they did a deal with Zoom and now make their theaters available for Zoom meetings on the big screen. And they'll have uh, hardware installed in the theaters uh, to connect to Zoom and put your interactive meetings on the screen. So you can do that with the theater by the hour. Yep, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, it's a lot of work theaters. <laughs> so, so I think that they made the announcement. I think it might take a little while for it to actually happen. But, um, but I think that uh, theaters are complicated. <laughs> you know, so, so the, uh, uh, but it will be interesting. Yeah, next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vera, Florida writes, Zoom event production studio was discussed yesterday. Any thoughts? And he has a link. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. Um, I think that uh, the production studio is going to give us a lot, you know, tools where you can be in a webinar and basically be able to cut a show, you know, cut a show and have, you know, a lot of the, uh, many of the tools that we want. So, you know, and, and where I think that 
you know, I think that there has been some discussion within our community about what does that mean for us if, if, if it's all built into the product. But I will say that, um, you know, if you're doing cookie cutter, you know, um, events that are not adding a lot of value, just just basically being able to cut between things, this some of the stuff will be will edge into your market. If you are really starting to build more and more bespoke solutions, I think that it, it's not it's going to only build up our market because you're going to be able to do a certain level of show inside a webinar. And you're going to see more people doing that. So more and more people are going to be building more complex shows inside a webinar. But a lot of them are still going to find a ceiling that they want to go past. As soon as they, you know, anytime you open a door, there's usually another door off in the distance. And the question is, they can't open that door <laughs> you know, without without more people to help them um, to build those. So I think that for, for those of us building more bespoke and higher end solutions for these things, I don't think that that, that really affects us as much. For folks that are just, you know, well, we can do your webinar for you, um, it's probably, it's going to be more challenging. There'll be a lot more competition, you know, internally at companies as well as external. Go ahead, Mitchell. Is it possible this is headed towards sort of like a MIMO or v, uh, V-Link Live? Uh, you know, I, I, I don't think that, um, again, I think that there's a lot of things that you can do inside of MIMO or in, inside of... Um, uh, you know, eCam and other things that are going to be much more complex than what you can necessarily do inside of the production studio. So, but I think the production studio is welcomed into the sense that you can get past the vanilla look of a of a Zoom event or a Zoom. You know, so you're moving much more to something that feels more produced and feels better. You know, than you know, and I think that that's really important. I I also think they should probably think about getting rid of the word webinar. <laughs> I, think, I think I think that's been ruined over the last decade. Um, but I think that it, it's going to make it feel a lot more professional. And again, I think that for many of us that are building higher end solutions, I think that it's only going to build more demand for our, our business. Um, you know, but if you're doing something that's, that's you know, more basic, it, it could be a little bit more challenging. Go ahead, Bill. Uh, one of the things most interesting to me in the early part of it was their talk about moving more into the customer service side of things rather than just uh, adding it as a technology that you have to figure out more uh more people who will help. I do think there are a ton of people out there and I see them in my corporate practice of regular video production. They're, they're just clueless. You know, it's whatever IT says is what they're forced into using. And the possibility of having a service team behind the actual product so that there is a point of contact. I know that a lot of the young men and young women I work with who are the facilitators in corporations have been feeling for the last couple of years like, they really have to stretch themselves because they're out of their comfort zone and they don't really know how these technologies work. Yet they have to implement them often in a C-suite for important people. Mm -hmm. And just to have a service element built in that they can go to for support will make a huge difference in their lives. Next question. Bo, uh, oh. Bo Cordell from Charleston, South Carolina asks, did I hear of a new Q&A handling app being added to Zoom that might be familiar to this group? Yeah. Uh, so Commenda was mentioned in the, in the, in what we're basically doing is building the back end of what we do here. Um, we've got the, we've got the uh, panel chat in there. So the idea is the panelists can open it up and do all the things they do here. Um, it's not quite ready to release, um, but it's very close. And, um, and so we're, uh, so we're going to be, we, we have that running. And then the goal, of course, is to put more and more back into it. 
Um, so we're we're working on a couple bits and pieces, but that's one of the reasons that Chris has been so busy, <laughs> so uh, not able to make any other updates is because we've been working through getting that working um, inside of Zoom, and we're pretty, uh, it's it's looking pretty good. It's it's pretty cool to have it uh, a, able to open up just as a as a side window like you'd have with chat. Go ahead, Mitchell. Can you say how much it's going to look like Mukana? Well, the panel part will look the panel the center column. We, we're not incorporating the other stuff yet, but the center column looks exactly like Mugana. Like, Mugana. like it's, it, it, it is, we're probably going to move, uh, for a variety of reasons, we're probably going to move the branding more towards Comenda, you know, related to the Q&A management tools. Uh, Mukana, you know, we're using that name, but it's designed for something else. So, so we're, um, so, but the uh, uh, Comenda is, by the way, Shona for comments. <laughs> so, so it's very, very direct. If you're wondering, what does that mean? Um, and so, uh, but otherwise it looks, it looks identical to it. And um, it's, it's still, still using our engine. Yeah. Uh, next question. Jeff Cohen from Miami Beach, Florida writes, thoughts on the Zoom spots announced? I thought there was an odd disconnect between the on-site folks versus remote people and what was supposed to bridge the hybrid team. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah. So it's interesting. I actually think a lot about this, especially, Alex, since hearing and, and thinking about your perspective, you talked about more so for events, of course, but the remote first versus hybrid way of thinking about this. And uh, so if anyone didn't catch it, um, uh, hopefully you guys can see my screen right now. I took a couple of screen grabs. This is, and you guys can see my screen, by the way. Yeah. yeah. So this is what they showed as this kind of water cooler idea of running into people. And they really mentioned, again, this point of this bridging that gap. But to me, what sticks out very noticeably is you have this uh, on the left, you have this one group of folks who are on site, on premise. They're having their own little thing, and presumably this would mean they talked about going into this room and they would have had to have even enabled this, um, you know, turning on Zoom or, or if it's persistently on. Then you have the separate remote folks, and then, you know, they're not together. And then next slide, you know, we popped in. It's very noticeably, you know, we, I, you have interrupted these folks and we're a separate thing. So, um, so to me, the, this this kind of missed the mark in terms of actually bridging that gap. And I'm curious if anyone else had that that same thought. You know, we've been doing things that are very similar to this for a decade. Um, you know, in in my previous company and where we had rooms just open, we had cameras just opened with mics um, that were sitting in different rooms in our offices. And you could just walk in and start talking to each other. And it worked really well, I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, it, it really it really uh, was effective at being able to, for people to, to be able to just jump in and say, hey, Greg, I, I need to talk to you about something. And he'd hear it somewhere and walk over and start talking to him. He's in D.C. and we're in, in San Francisco. And so it was it was something that we've used in the past. Um, and uh, and I think that um, I think that Zoom Spots is pretty interesting. I think it's it's very similar to After Hours in, in a lot of ways. Um, probably not with an, enough features to, for us to use it for After Hours, but but I think that that kind of serendipitous, uh, you know, being able to just jump into a thing that people say, oh, it's opened, and you can just walk in and, and talk as if you were walking into an open office, I think solves a bunch of uh, a bunch of potential issues. And you can always just drop out if you don't want to be in it. I mean, I think that the what it does and what I think what After Hours points towards and what Spots 
continues to kind of go down um, is the ultimate water cooler or the ultimate open office, which is that you have an open office that is that you get to intentionally decide I'm there or I'm not. I'm, I'm going to go into the office. I can listen to people and not show myself and not talk. I can talk. I can not be there. The problem with open offices in the physical world is that you don't get to do all those things. You don't, you don't get to have a lot of choice. You only get to be there. I go ahead, Courtney. You don't have the cloak of invisibility to use. Oh, uh, I, I don't. So I, I've worked, you know, as a contractor, I've worked in a lot of companies with open offices. And after a day or two of it, I'm like, I don't know how people could live this way. Like I just, it is the most insanity driving process. Like I just find it to be just un, unmanageable. I would never, never work in that environment. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't see the demo, but is this more like uh, breakout rooms with visuals uh, so that you actually can visualize all that you can see all the people live that are in each breakout room as you scroll down the right hand side there? Yeah. Is that kind of how it works? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, go ahead and check. Yeah, and this for anyone who didn't see it or, or missed this segment, I mean, this is not about, at least as they explained it, this is not about the rooms or meetings or anything else. This particular thing is meant to to do that kind of serendipitous uh, water cooler running into you. So in other words, you're you're working, maybe you're on camera all day in, in work mode, but now you want to take a break for what would have been you strolling down the hall to go get your coffee and, and you know, running into Courtney. Oh, you know, and so you place yourself in that mode. I'm going to hang out <clears throat> in spots now. Maybe I'm working, but I'm just, you know, here, like Alex said, for anyone to come by. So, and I want to be clear, I think the, the promise for this, I think is, is fantastic. The only thing that seemed odd, the way they presented it was the, that what I still perceived as a disconnect. And by the way, I may be tainted. I worked for a couple of years in an environment where I was in the office like three days a week and, and remote two days a week. And anytime I was in a meeting, um, and especially if I was the only one remote, it was very clear I was a second-class citizen in that meeting. So same thing kind of struck me about the way they presented, and I think there's probably some better ways maybe to blend it, even like, you know, what's on Twit, where each remote person is actually on kind of a, a, a kiosk yeah. with a monitor, and that that's a physical representation of that person. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I have to admit that I, I prefer, I, if I was going to build a, something today, I would build single unit things that people could work in that are quiet. Like I would just build these little pods, you know, that, that are quiet that you can jump into shoulder up and be, everyone's on the same. I wouldn't put three people in a room to, to have a discussion with people online just because as in your same, my experience is the same as yours. You just kind of, most of the time the conference rooms are so bad that you can't understand what people are saying. You know, and so that's that's a big challenge that they have to solve. Go ahead, Peter. Would you call those little rooms offices? I would. I would. <laughs> well, the thing is, is that I mean, Full circle. I can tell you that there's 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 companies that that have uh, you know had offices and then moved to open office, and the jockeying for position within the teams to hang on to the to stay in the old buildings to in the and the and the and the offices is incredible. You well, know, I, nobody I, wants I, to go I, to the new I, one. I've watched a, a a major government client very proud of themselves went to the all open office right before. Oh yeah, what a disaster! And, and then it was an absolute disaster. But the other point I would make is, I mean, you need to have some self discipline with this kind of work ethic because i mean i used to host 
I'll say host a, I had office hours where I was on mm-hmm. camera for that period of time. And if somebody wanted to come in and right. my meeting and do it. That's how this all got started. <laughs> and, and then I would shut it and then I would shut it down and say, I'm not, I'm right. going to actually do real work now. That's, that's how this, <laughs> that's how this whole program that we have here started is I was like, I'll hold office hours and then I'll, and then I'll go to work. And, um, and, uh, and now it's become a much bigger thing, but, but I do think that it, it'll be interesting to see. I, I do think zoom spots is a pretty interesting thing of, especially when people are in single cameras, I think it'll work better. But I think that it, even if it's in spots where you have zoom rooms, um, I do think there's some interesting possibilities there. Now, next question. Doug Carmichael writes, what niche do you think Zoom's intelligent director and studio features will occupy versus small professional operators like a lot of us? I think that these are really built. I mean, if I remember correctly, this is really more of a conference room solution um, that was shown in during our after hours uh, discussion was some people who had the cameras that were being shown there were not that impressed with them. The biggest problem with a lot of the intelligent director stuff is the mics, knowing where someone's actually talking. And that's the thing that is, uh, if you have if you have mics in the center of the room, it's really difficult to make that happen. We had it working years ago in our office, but we gave everybody a mic. We stuck a mic in their pocket. <laughs> like, here's a mic. And then we just looked at which mic was opened, you know, which mic was getting the, the loudest, and we just switched the camera to that person. And that worked great. But when you start playing around with all this extra tech and, again, bad conference rooms, I think that the biggest thing that, the biggest market I think we're going to see blowing up is re, the redesign, the rebuilding of conference rooms for virtual participants is going to be a big market. And it's a billion-dollar opportunity because they all have to be rebuilt. Like they were all built badly. And, you know, for they're built for to look nice and for people to sit in them, but they weren't built for virtual participants. And they all have to be tear, torn apart and put back together. And over the next 10 years, you'll see billions of dollars spent tearing apart conference rooms and, re, and rebuilding them so that they sound better. They, you know, they, they, they work for virtual events um, because, the, you know, a third to a half of the workers are going to be not in the office. You know, next question. Andy Kokendorfer in Vera, Florida. Thoughts about Zoom Intelligent Director. Might we see this tech come to PTZ cameras for staged event facial tracking? Yeah, I think it's still I think it's still a new technology. I don't think it's I don't think it's mature yet. But uh, at least from the folks that in after hours that we were, we were watching with it said it, it works about half the time. <laughs> so so I think that it. But I think that with PTZs and I, I think especially with a host of little PTZs that can actually um, you know go, cut around and so on and so forth. You could build something pretty interesting as as small ones, medium sized ones, et cetera. Um, I think that uh, I think that people do have to really think about how to make it a great experience. I think a lot of people want to have a PTZ, one PTZ in the center of the room, and have it all work for everybody. And I think that you really have to think about more, <laughs> you know, more PTZs uh, to really start to get an experience that people enjoy. Um, next question, JJ McKenna. In Santa Venetia, California, writes, after viewing a few of the sessions yesterday, including the close by Timbaland, it doesn't seem like Zoom is using their product as well as they could. Any idea why they might be embracing the old in-person model? You know, it's it's hard that it's hard to answer hard to answer that. I, I do think that they uh, that there's an opportunity, and I think that for us, the opportunity over next year is to start to prove what those models would look like. Um, I think that the world is not ready for 
what's going to happen, you know, like just yet. And so them telling everybody it's going to be all virtual or digital first would be very hard for people to swallow. So I think that um, people, you know, in the current uh, temperature, people would, I, I think, still are, are clinging to the, to the past. Go ahead, Bill. Well, I was just going to note that I don't think people who are not in the production business and don't see the backstage effort it takes to put on an in-person concert style show. That is a very complex organism. And there are plenty of professionals out there who have been doing it and solving those problems so that it can be a good experience for an audience arrayed in front of a performer on a stage doing their performance. When you start saying, you know, we could do it differently you don't have that cadre of professionals who know how to set up front of house monitors and understand mixing for, you know, for live versus broadcast and things like that. And it's going to take a while, I think, for new producers to come into this new virtual or I hate to use the word hybrid space um, and get the balance right. And so I think you're seeing traditional concert producers doing things that are shown out elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, I think that, but I think that as far as the sessions go, I think that they, I don't know about the concerts, but as far as the sessions go, I think that the, um, I think that they could probably be more aggressive uh, in what they're doing. Um, next question. Uh, Douglas Carmichael writes, could the after hours always open water cooler model be implemented as a Zoom spot? I don't think so right now. I think that there's things that we're doing with it, like the test pages and some of the labs and everything else that would be a little hard for us to do as, you know, um, in inside of spots. So we definitely looked at it and uh, I don't think that it's quite ready for what we're doing yet. Um, I don't I don't think that I'm not saying that it will never be something that we would use, but I don't think that the current implementation of it would um, allow us to do some of the stuff that we do right now. Uh, next question. Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas writes, Zoom One Pro plans are being discounted 17% with free whiteboard. Can current plans get this discount when they renew or will they have to pay the full price plus pay for whiteboard? And he has uh, amounts in there. No idea. <laughs> no idea. We're more, more of a tech discussion than a cost discussion. Uh, next question. Stan Chan from San Francisco, California writes, Riverside has 4K double-ender recording capabilities. Will Zoom's double-ender recording capabilities support that use case in the future? That would be a great feature. Yeah, I, I don't know if it'll, I don't know if it'll do 4K. I don't know if Zoom will support it. I'm sure that 4K might be somewhere in the future for them. Um, but, uh, but I think that uh, most people are looking for 1080p. <laughs> like so, so I think that, you know, the Riverside, it's, it's great that they can do 4K. Um, but, but I would, um, uh, you know, I, I, with the announcement that, that Zoom made, I would hate to be a stockholder in Riverside. Um, so, so, so that's all I would say. Uh, next question. Jeff Cohen from Miami Beach, Florida. Anyone else completely distracted by yesterday's nonstop river of animated Zoom reaction emojis in their equivalent of to taping <laughs> their equivalent to taping someone's eyelids open, they disable the ability for viewers on mobile at least to hide them. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, so it, it really was the case and, and I what stood out to me, and so I was I was on the go, I was watching it on mobile. And it was nonstop and, and it kind of defeated the 
the purpose, in my view, you know, the reactions are great where they're mostly not there, but someone says something really cool or announces a new cool feature. And then you kind of get to gauge the reaction, the equivalent of applause to those reactions. But when they're nonstop, literally, then it loses any meaning, frankly, and it was just distracting. For me, at least, distracting to the point where I dropped out of Zoom and went to YouTube to watch the live stream on YouTube because uh, they did disable. We normally have the ability to say, I don't want to see it. And, then, and they disabled that, uh, it, it would appear. Um, so I'm curious, maybe if anyone knows, can can a host right now mid-meeting, I know the a host can set this up ahead of time, whether or not you want to have reactions, but can a host intra-meeting kind of turn it off, turn it back on? In other words, yeah. keep it off, but then if there's something, you know, you want reactions to, turn it on. Yeah, I I, um, I have to admit that I, I greatly dislike <laughs> reactions. So, so I, I, I'm, you know, as a, as a, uh, when they're just easily distracted, I, I I try to minimize the number of things that are happening in the in the screen in front of me. So I think that's the that's the real challenge. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. I watched it in the office hours watch party, and and I did the same thing. I started looking on how to turn all the things that were popping up and distracting me off through the help of the people in the back end and all of our, uh, our our great community. I was finally able to get them all off. So it is possible to turn them all off. Some of them are overt and you know where they are. But like any new service, getting to learn how to operate it, where do I go to turn off this pop up that's annoying me? Uh, it took me probably 15 minutes to get it the way I really wanted it. And to be clear, their documented place where you are able to do this again, I was on mobile, was not there. So yeah, well, I, I on have... mobile managed to get them all off. So there was a place, but hmm. the last thing that I got off, I remember it took somebody pinging me in my ear and saying, ah, I finally found it. You go here and you click on that thing that's unintuitive. And then you go down to this menu and you turn it off. It was not easy. And I think that the reaction to, to emojis and so on and so forth are probably uh, pretty much the same as you have with everything else is a third, third of the folks can't stand them. A third of the folks love them and a third of the folks don't really care. You know, like that, that's, that's probably how it all works out. Next question. Douglas Carmichael writes with zoom studio at all taking over the low end, what paths will there be for entry level talent wanting to enter our industry? A major truck operator has an apprentice program, but they require some level of broadcast experiences to enter it. Uh, well, it is finding places to, to, to do that. You still, you know, a lot of it can be implementing those things um, for other folks. I mean, just because they have, I mean, we used to joke that, you know, Google always apologized to us when we were doing Hangouts and they'd go, well, you know, we're bringing out Hangouts on air so anybody can do it. And we're really sorry that you built up a business around this, but we're going to make it more available to everybody else. And my business just kept on getting busier and busier and busier <laughs> until they shut, until they shut, um, you know, G plus down directly. And even then after that for another year, it was, um, it was still just getting busier because just because someone has the tools doesn't mean they understand the logistics of running an event. There is there is a ton of how to prep, prepare your speakers and how to make sure that they have good audio and video and how do they how do you um, prep them. It's not just a matter of having the tools that are available to do it. It's like just having a pencil. I mean, everybody's got a pencil, but there's some people that are better with a pencil than others. <laughs> Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, it it has the you know 
the broadcast situation has changed, but there still are broadcast channels out there, local channels, and a good path to get into the industry uh, and to get that experience is find a local broadcaster, especially if there's an educational broadcaster or uh, you know a local uh, PBS radio station or uh, 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 educational television station. Volunteer for work there. And you can get your foot in the door. That's how one way I started in the business many, many years ago, and they're still around. And they have even more requirements for people because they also now have to support their online uh, internet-facing uh, uh, broadcast section. So, you know, they'll have a broadcast de- desk uh, at a lot of news, co- you know, local news mm-hmm. organizations that they have to man 24 hours a day, and it's live on the air on the internet, even though they're not broadcasting. So they have a need and a high turnover for a number of people. So that's a good place to volunteer and get information and get experience, you know, and- as an intern. And for more online events, you're you're probably going to find that more and more look more 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 of these look like what we're doing in in office hours in two point five um, than than not um, so, you know for the online events, and so volunteering for what we're doing right now is a pretty good way to get to know people and get to think about that thing um, because um, you know we're there are more than a few people that are modeling what they're thinking about around what we're figuring out so. Um, and I think, you know, we'll, we'll do a lot more of it over next year, but getting on to any teams that you can do to, you know, it's not about, uh, learning how to do something once it, you know, like when I'm looking for someone to work for me, I want to know that they did it 50 to a hundred times, <laughs> you know, like it's not, you know, like, or at least like that's entry level, you know, and, and most people I hire have done whatever I'm asking them to do a thousand times, you know, and so it, you gotta, you know, if you have time, you want to put the time into the things that you need to do. Um, to do that. Um, that's the mistake that people make is they're trying to find the right thing or how do they do it quickly rather than spending today doing what needs to get done to keep on driving through that process. Next question. Peter Sargent from Round Rock, Texas says, thoughts on the keying of the virtual backgrounds in Zoomtopia? And go ahead, Mitchell. People using uh, virtual backgrounds is the business equivalent of being caught with a clip-on tie. It's generally not very uh, believable and it's distracting. It's distracting from what you're talking because all the weird jello head effect that you get and all the yeah, other I things. And I don't then, know if and that's what Peter, I don't what, know if that's what Peter's talking about. Um, Peter, I, I think that he's talking about the present presenters. Um, yeah, I mean, at the this, show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, on the, that, that that particularly came to light when I was watching the technical back technical presentations. Specifically, Teams integration with with Zoom or Zoom integration with Teams. Oh, so not the not the vir- potentially virtual backgrounds in the keynote. You're talking about sessions. So then I would. Yeah, I, would I agree mean, with they Mitch. they were. <laughs> if you watch them, they were. I think the word would I would use would be abysmal. I don't understand. I I don't understand it. Um, I I don't. I, I get that. Uh, I mean, for what they do for a living, you'd think they'd know how to do this. <laughs> I I. I I don't have any, I don't have any words for it. Like, I don't, I don't, it's, it is, uh, it, I do believe that there's something cultural about trying to be like the average person using Zoom. Um, but it's a, it's just a really, I can't, I, I can't watch a presenter. The only time I ever see presenters with a virtual background or when I'm in a conference with them, like I'm in a speaking thing and I have to speak with them um, is the only time I ever see virtual backgrounds because if I go to an event that has a virtual background, I just leave. <laughs> like, I just like, I'm, you know, it's like, it's gotten to the same point if, if I listen, I'm listening to a radio show and someone calls in, if I hear that <laughs> phone, bless you. Sorry about that. 
uh, <laughs> if I hear that phone, I will literally, uh, someone call in to answer something, a, a representative or somebody else. I just stop listening. I just turn it off. Like, I'm not, I'm not like I've, I've, I've had enough. Like we have the technology to not live that way. And I won't. Like there's no information that you have that I am so desperate for that I'll watch a virtual background to, to hear it. Um, go ahead, Mitchell. Even if it was a perfect virtual background, let's say the best key, the best background, it still distracts you because you're you're thinking to yourself, is that real? Is that not? Well, if it's a perfect one, Do they one, really you won't live know. on the beach in um, Waikiki? Yeah. Well, uh, what's going on here? One of the keys is not to be outrageous about it. Like, you know, the, so that's the, 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 when the virtual background, what really makes a virtual background work when, if you're going to use one is a hair detail, <laughs> like hair and hair detail makes a big difference in like just all the little bits of hair and everything else that are there. That's number one. And number two is matching, you know, number two is matching the focal length and the camera height so that the, the image behind you was driven. If, if I'm using a background and we've, I've done a lot a lot of virtual backgrounds, I'm going to use the same camera with the same focal length that I'm going to use for the person. I'm going to go somewhere and shoot that background at the same height, same rotation, everything. And then I'm going to bring it back in and put it behind them. I'm not going to put them on the beach. I'm not going to put them in some grand whatever. I'm going to put them in somewhere that you believe that they are where they are. The, folk, the, the vanishing points match, the hair details there, the, and you can absolutely do that. I mean, if you go back, I mean, I, I don't think we were recording the one I had that, but I think on most days in the early days of, of office hours, my key worked pretty well. You know, like my key worked pretty well over a virtual background, but that was my living room. <laughs> like, like the virtual background was my living room. It wasn't some grand whatever. It was just another room in the house. It just let me, because I have windows behind me here. So that's why I, I did it. Um, and I think that it, it, you can make it work. It's just that it's a lot of, what I found was it's just a lot of effort. It's a lot of effort to have the green screen work that well, you know, and I wasn't sure if it was worth the, I wasn't sure if it was worth doing that um, because it, it just, I don't think that the, the, there was enough ROI, which is why I switched to a gray screen. And you're yeah. expecting them to, to show good taste in what they put back there, but, which isn't always the case. You know, what was interesting is I was in, I was speaking at, I don't remember what event I was speaking at, but it was some, some virtual event and they gave me a background and I said, I got to tell you, I'm not going to put that behind me. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And, uh, but what I did do is I took the graphic that was like an, at an angle out of, out of their graphic. So it's, I wanted to be, you know, a good citizen. Like I, they, they, they want branding and they want that working. And I keyed that over my video, down the corner of my video. And they saw it and they go, oh, that looks actually a lot nicer <laughs> than what we were doing. I was like, you can, you can still brand it. You can still put something on the front part of it that says whatever, wherever you're at. It's just that stop doing the back thing. And, and again, I think the gray, the gray screen is a great way to just say, I don't know what I'm going to do here. I'm going to just make that work. Go ahead, Jeff. So Mitch, I guess you're you're not a fan of the animated moving virtual background, like you know they're on a roller coaster or something. So much oh, worse. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. I'm kidding. Oh no thanks. So, so uh, Alex, you actually there, it was uh, a little while ago. It was a webinar you were on for I think a Vixar, if I'm remembering. Oh, correctly. Vixia, Vixia, yeah. And and they, I mean, and they they themselves unfortunately did a really horrible job of of putting it behind themselves that was the one uh, i think that, that's the one that i mentioned that i and I, what yeah. i did was i took their graphic and i put it over top of my video so that i you know I, I wanted to still give them the branding that they wanted i just wasn't willing to put it behind me 
I will say I did give a, a little hack to a friend of mine. She's not presenting, but she just needs to use it for, for her business meetings, especially when they're at um, working from home. The trick I gave her is, and she started a new job with a new company. I said, from day one, pick a virtual background, something simple, you know, that won't look bad. And then that way, when you're traveling, and especially you don't tell them you're traveling, it's the same virtual background. They don't know you're somewhere else. So... Yeah, I mean, I think that that's where um, uh, the um, I think that that's where, you know, people want to be able to use virtual backgrounds. It's just the, the virtual background quality is just not there yet. You know, that's the that's the issue. And and people's use of it is really distracting. Go ahead, Peter. Well, I was going to go back to what you're saying. I mean, I like the gray background. Certainly I've used it here. But here is what's ruined me for watching virtual backgrounds. To be honest, I mean, because yeah. we we've gotten so good at playing that game and keying things out. Um, but yesterday, I mean, what was interesting is they were using trying to use a solid color virtual background and still couldn't get the keying right. I mean, so it was blue as an example. Behind you would have been a, a light blue. Yeah, yeah, it's with a nice white line around your body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mitchell, if they win a winner. They need to work on virtual foregrounds of people sitting there going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, great. There you go. Exactly. And just loop it. Uh, next question. Um, Andy Kokendorfer from Vera, Florida says, could Zoom IQ, that's AI-powered presenter monitoring, be used to train hosts and speakers? And he has a link. I think it, it, it was an interesting thing to train hosts and speakers via the IQ, um, the Zoom IQ. So basically it gives you feedback of, of what you're doing um, and it's watching you and giving. And I think that as a general purpose, hey, go do this before you get you come on. It could be a really good tool to make that just to tighten that up a little bit um, to, you know, and, and not have to have someone sitting there. It gives someone who hasn't done this very much the ability to kind of get move up a little bit before they start talking to a human. I don't think it's going to replace lots of practice and and uh human you know uh uh uh, review and and uh guidance but i think that it it could get you you know figuring a couple things out before you get in Um, next question chris van wick from emeryville california how much if any do you think that office hours was influential in the creation of these new features at zoom go ahead mitchell Mr. Fenwick, I wouldn't come right out and say that we influenced the effects, but I would say we helped create a nutrient-rich environment for it. Next question. Chris Widener, uh, Lafayette, Indiana. Bundle essential apps in Zoom. Do we know if this will affect the Zoom ISO licensing, sing, or question mark? I don't think so. I don't, I think the bundling has to do with other products. I don't think it's the, I don't think the ISO is going to be part of the bundling, but I don't know that for sure. It's something you can ask tomorrow uh, when folks from the team are here. Um, next question. Paul Walhus from Austin Testis writes, would Zoomapalooza sessions, what Zoomapalooza sessions are the hottest today? There's the sessions in this morning. I don't know what the name of the sessions are, um, but Andy and Sam, Andy's doing one at 930 and Sam is doing one, I think at 1115. Uh, and I think that those are the ones that we're going to watch <laughs> so uh, as much as we can. So I think that those are the ones we'll, we'll do. And then they're going to be here tomorrow. So um, uh, so I think that those are the ones we want to uh, that we want to pay attention to. Go ahead, Bill. I'm desperately interested in are they recording them and putting them back up? I unfortunately have a annual fix- physical that I missed next year. 
uh, missed last year for that's scheduled tomorrow. I can't watch. So do we know how soon they're going to go I, up? I think that they're going to go up soon after, but I'm not not certain. Yeah, I don't, okay. I don't know what the, what the situation Fingers is. Fingers crossed I'll be able to watch them this afternoon. Yeah. Uh, next question. Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana says, do we know what Zoom IQ virtual coach that was announced or how interactive it will be for training? Yeah, I think that we don't know enough about it right now, um, but I think that it, it could be a pretty interesting uh, product. Go ahead, Courtney. Does it come with a little box with a pantograph and a boxing glove on it that comes out and punches you in the <laughs> exactly. face? Exactly. That would be great. <laughs> um, uh, next question. Josh Kaufman from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Zoom's choice of not safe for work entertainment was surprising to some. Thoughts about the reasoning why an enterprise-focused service made this style choice? Are they following a rising trend or trying to set one? A good strategy to follow? Go ahead, Jeff. I'm, I'm glad it wasn't me that asked it, but I certainly was wondering the same thing. I love Alex, um, uh, especially her work uh, as a voiceover in particularly. Um, I don't know that she's known for being a stand-up comic. You know, the, the interesting juxtaposition there is comedians, especially when they're doing corporate gigs, you know, increasingly, of course, are given a, li a whole list of topics not to discuss. And, and now, frankly, the list is probably shorter. Just say what you can. So they really have to be PG in their topics. And she did that. So I wonder if the executives knew how salty her language was going to be. It was really weird. So PG content, um, you know, grown up language. And, and I thought it was a very odd combination for what the event was. I was dying to be a fly on the wall of the execs when they were hearing this because I doubt they knew she was going to do all that. Oh, they might have. <laughs> I don't know why that was chosen. It's not definitely not a choice that um, that I uh, would have done. <laughs> so I guess this is the, you know I'm not uh, you know I, and I um, uh, yeah. So I, I, I was a little surprised. Uh, I admit, um, and a little taken back by the by the performance um, of, and just, I, you know, I've, I've streamed hundreds of keynotes. <laughs> so, so I've, I've watched a lot of them. Uh, I have, I don't think I have ever seen a comedian brought up before the show that I liked, that, you know, that I thought was good. The only one, I guess there was one, there was a George Bush impersonator <laughs> That was back uh, when George Bush was president. Uh, this was a long time ago. That was pretty funny. Like he was just, he just had the kind of the, the, the George Bush thing and, and we made him stretch. The funniest part, where I think the reason I remember it is that the, our, our main speaker was late and we made him stretch for 15 minutes and he was way funnier when we, when we, he, he got out of the lines that he had and he just had to be George Bush for 15 minutes with no, with no script. And he just was great, you know, and he was still appropriate and funny and talking to people. And he obviously knew his stuff. And I was very impressed that he was able to stretch for 15 minutes with, without any script, still be, st never, never dropped character. Don't like broccoli. Um, don't like it at all. It's no, no, worse. that, no, not, not, not George W is what he was, he was. Oh. Referring we should have done both of them. That would have been two yeah. for the price of one. Yeah, exactly. So, so anyway, I think I thought that one was pretty funny. Um, but outside of that, I don't like it, and and I just don't like. I just feel like uh, I, I'm not. You know, I'm, 
I think that the, the big thing, the challenge with keynotes in general is that most of us just want the protein. Like we're not interested in, we're not interested in all the other things on the, on the plate. And so we don't want to hear personal stories. We don't want to hear um, things. We just want to know what you, what you released. And, you know, you can have a couple things that are, that are going to be contextual um, that show, you know, like, and I think that, um, again, I think that the two best examples of, um, of a keynote is really Frame.io and, and um, uh, Frame.io's last one before they were bought by Adobe is probably the best small keynote <laughs> that was produced. And Apple's just keep getting better. And, and I think that Apple's ruining it for everybody because I don't think that when you get used to watching their movies um, about their products, the stage experience just gets worse and worse and worse. The experience of someone being on a stage is just, I find it to be brutal. Like just, it's just brutal to watch. I, I have a hard time keeping my eyes open now. Like, and that's not a, a thing with Zoom. It's with Samsung, it's with um, Google, with everything they're talking. It's the, the data, the content density is so low on a stage just because that's the requirement of being on a stage. And I, I, I was thinking about it recently and I just realized that the only person that was ever really, the only two people that were ever really good at doing keynotes is, um, is uh, Steve Jobs and Mark Benioff after um, Tony Robbins. <laughs> so, so Mark Benioff before Tony Robbins, not so much. After Tony Robbins, what, better than Steve Jobs, in my opinion, like his ability to command that. But it is an incredible amount of work to to be that good at it. And I don't think the companies that most companies put the time in to to be that good. And if they're not going to put the time in, and I'm saying, you know, f at the beginning, almost full time for a little while to get that good. And then after that, like three to five hours a week, forever <laughs> like to be that to be as good as 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 what it takes to do something operate at that level and if you're not going to operate at that level i think they just need to give up you know i think they just need to like and i think that more and more companies need to just stop stop doing stage stage presentations because they're not watchable uh, go ahead jeff and i to extend that uh you know i don't know if anyone else did i overall i really found myself at the beginning looking at my watch i mean it started late then we had, you know, uh, the the opening host, and then we had the CEO, who's who's great, but clearly delivering a marketing team revised version of their origin story, which really, frankly, went on. So, in other words, I mean, we were over uh, half an hour to forty minutes in before we got to that protein, and I was really, you know, looking for the move on. Button. And you know, Apple had this problem for a long time. They would they would sit there and talk about their financials. They would talk about you know, their, there's all these stuff that Apple would open up their presentations for, and all of us were like, oh my gosh, like just get to the like, are we getting a new iPhone or not? Oh yeah, we are because we knew that it was coming. Like, just tell us what the what's new in the camera like that's all we want like when you're watching when you watch an iphone thing all you're asking for is so what's the new camera <laughs> you know and so so and 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 uh and so i think that it's a challenge for everybody and i think that our industry is gonna I, again i think that we're probably five i mean i'll say conservatively 10 years out but maybe five years out to where keynotes keynotes on stages are not something people do you know like it's it, you know it's it's and i'm in it's been over the last three or four months that i've really gotten how you know, you watch, and the, again, it's, you're watching Apple just do movies and they literally come out and just say, here's, a, I was talking to someone that was at the Apple when I wasn't there. Um, and they said, you know, someone comes out and says, hey, really glad to have you here. 
here's our movie. <laughs> you know, like, like we're going to hand you the movie. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. There's never going to be another Steve Jobs, and anybody that tries to emulate him or do what's what made Steve successful um, really looks bad. And I also hate seeing CEOs uh, step up and try to do something outside their comfort zone, like funny, uh, unless they've got a really good writer, or ones that act in a, uh, a little sketch or do something. It's so absurd, and the fact that right. the CEO's taking themselves so seriously, um, it just really undermines well, their credibility. And- and even for sessions, I mean, you know, uh, WWDC moved from everyone doing live sessions to recorded sessions. I'd be blown away if they ever go back to live. Like, I would just be blown away if those sessions ever go back to a live presentation um, because the recorded ones are so much better. <laughs> you know, so go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I think Alex will agree with me on this. Don McMillan should host your next uh, corporate event because he... He produced something called Life After Death by PowerPoint, and his whole comedy oh routine gosh. is around PowerPoint, and it is hilarious. Search oh for it gosh. on YouTube. It is hilarious. He would be great. Okay, I, I, I watched, I've watched a lot of Don McMillan. I've been trying to find a way to get in contact with him so he can come on and on after on, on office hours for a second hour because it's just, he's a genius. Yeah, Don McMillan is, is amazing. Uh, next question. Jesse Mills from the San Francisco Bay Area writes, did I miss any news on third-party control of Zoom rooms? Still dreaming. Not that I know of. (laughs) Next question. Douglas Carmichael, how do you think the avatars feature is tracking the user's movement to manipulate the avatar? Would there be any off-Zoom applications that could achieve the same effect? Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of folks doing that now. You know, on, on Apple, we have um, Memojis that do the same thing. It's It can be more accurate on mobile because they also have the depth um, data. But, you know, any of these now, I mean, we're already looking into a camera. So they're just mapping the movement of the real you and mapping that to the avatar. What I'm amazed by, and I think that this is just such a... Um, I really was thinking about it yesterday, is how hard it is to make those um, emojis or avatars look good. And Apple somehow just nailed it. <laughs> like, like they just, they, they nailed it. it. You, when you turn it on, you're like a better version of, you know, a cooler version of yourself, um, you know, than, than you are. And, 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 and I'm sure that it took a lot of work because I look at everybody else's avatars and I'm like, Ooh, I don't ever want to look like that. Like I just, and I, you know, and I, and I've had that experience with everything other than apples, you know, and I think that it's, and, 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 I think it would be a great second hour, even if we don't have anybody to talk about it, to like break down like what is it about those emojis that look so much better than everybody else's? And I can't quite put my finger on what it is, but there there's a there's something that they're they're doing in the geometry of it that just feels, you know, truly cartoonish, you know, and and playful and fun in a way that I just don't see anybody else doing at the same level. Yeah, go ahead, Lois. So I'm wondering if sometime, someday, we can get all the panel in their own personal avatars on screen for, I don't know, a group shot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Next question. Okay, Douglas Carmichael writes, could anyone identify the music track that was playing at the keynote opening? No idea. Uh, Next question. Josh Kaufman from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Zoom announced highlights feature of watching only the best part of a Zoom recording. I did not find it working on yesterday's content. Thoughts about its potential? Um, 
Yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, yeah, I don't know much about it. Go ahead, Bill. Scares me to death because I feel like I would give a presentation and there would be no highlights. <laughs> I'd be like, hi, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to Office Hours. Hi, and then, and then, thank then you for goes, watching. Thank you for watching. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thanks to our, thanks to our producers. Thanks to our, yeah, exactly. That'd be, that'd be a little, that'd be harsh. And that's our show. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, <laughs> there's the angry, anyway, yeah. The, the the angry zoom bot and he's like oh they, no you know, cut all no to you out. yeah exactly <laughs> go ahead lois so for those of us who aren't really familiar with what it is what is this highlights feature i don't know like i don't i, don't, I think i missed i missed the bubble there uh, go ahead um jeff yeah i i may be confusing this with another feature because i didn't catch the video part but the highlights and teams microsoft teams um does this but in other words instead of a person at the end you end up with text you know not not just a transcript but literally it's supposed to be able to intelligently extract kind of follow-up to do items action items from it so it's not just you know capturing the text but but making some kind of summary and actionable data from that i'll be interested to see next question Douglas Carmichael, would there be any app that could provide avatar-like features and be able to connect via NDS, excuse me, NDI slash siphon to Mimo Live? So you can actually, uh, you can get, and I was going to try to show it, but I'm just not quite set up yet. Um, you can get the Memoji to show up on your phone and get it to go out of the HDMI output. So if you wanted to really do Memojis through that, you probably could find a way to do that. Um, I just don't have it set up to do that, but it's, um, but I, I, there's a, there was someone on TikTok that was using an emoji. This is like two years ago. It was using an emoji head, you know, and they would impersonate things and everything else. And I thought it was really fun. So I tried to figure out how to do it. <laughs> so, and so I, it, you can do it. It's a little funky. Like it, it, I think that I'm kind of surprised that Apple doesn't just give us a emoji app. You know, like that just opens up and it's just a emoji and it just pushes video out. <laughs> like it's like this. Here's the video out of that of that emoji, but they don't they don't have a, a way to make that work. So, um, but it's uh, it it it's, it could be fun. Um, I I've often thought it would be it, yeah. There's <laughs> applications for that. that I think it would be a lot of fun. All right, well, it's a good conversation. Uh, a reminder that tomorrow. Um, we will be, the Zoom team will actually be here and talking about a lot of the features and answering your questions um, and, uh, and kind of walking, walking you through all of those, uh, all of those details. So it'll be, uh, it'll be really fun to, if you're really looking for the technical answers to, uh, to, to uh, what we're talking about, um, I think it's going to be a great, a great second hour. So stay tuned for that. Um, we traveled 55,000 miles, 89,000 kilometers. Um, so it was good, a good day. I covered a lot of covered a lot of ground there. Thanks so much to our producers for all the great questions, driving the question, driving the conversation forward. And thanks to our panelists. So I can't do this without you. And thanks to the great team on the back end that are figuring out how to do this. And we're slowly moving forward to 2.5. A lot of things have been kind of put into place. And um, so we're excited to see uh, how, we're, how, we're, how we're doing. We'll talk a little bit on Friday. We made the move and uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. And finally, the after hours watch party that you're looking for is the breakout room emerging verticals keynote 9:30 to 10:30 that's going to be our um that's going to be uh, watching Andy I think Andy's going to be t showing us some new stuff and talking about some of the stuff we've already seen in more detail so stay tuned for that all right let's jump into after hours
This is where Lois gets to get up on that blue Yeti. I'm back. <laughs> Just when you thought it was safe to say no. Yeah, Just exactly. gonna say that, Courtney. <laughs> I'm right, to start right, here the we show. Go. Yep, yep, exactly. Thank you, Mitch. See ya. Bye, Harshid. Everybody's going away. I'll see you next time. Have a great day. You too.